So I want to begin by telling you a story um, of something happened in the pa- past couple of weeks. Uh, it's a story of me and George. Some of you know my friend George Cannon, pastors of church here in town. Um, I have a kingdom mentality, so I feel like if I can help George be successful, that benefits the kingdom of God. And uh, when uh, he and I were together at McDonald's here a couple, three weeks ago, I said to him, are you using version Live events? Now, the version Live events, some of you use it, some of you don't. It's interesting to me, a lot of times the older people like it, uh, the younger people aren't as turned on by it, but it's a handy little tool because it lets you see the scripture and follow along the notes and make your own notes and things like that. It's just a really handy tool if you're tech savvy. And I told George about it before and he was kind of like, yeah, that's cool. But this time I mentioned it at McDonald's and he said, tell me how that works. And I showed him how it works. And then the next thing I knew, I looked at the version Live event and he's got like live events all over the place for his radio program, for his podcast, for, you know, it's like if you go to the live event today, I even had to change our name to Kerbinsville Alliance 725 Susquehanna Avenue so you weren't following George's notes instead of mine, you know, because he's Kerbinsville Christian, I'm Kerbinsville Alliance, it was just kind of funny, you know. So then I met with him after that, and this is what he said to me, listen to what he said. He said, hey, I really want to thank you for showing me that live event thing. That is so neat, and it will be so helpful to my ministry. Thank you, Steve, for having a mentality of sharing rather than hoarding what you know. And I thought, you know, it was Bob Cook, another pastor that taught me that. He taught me to be that way. So then we're talking a little bit more, and he says, you know that you can embed the live event into your church app. And I'm like, what? Really? And, and so he helped me back. The difference, or the reason rather, that George and I do that for one another and for anyone else who's preaching the gospel is because we realize while we live everyday lives, we are not part of the everyday kingdom. We're part of an eternal kingdom, which is something bigger than our ministries, bigger than our problems, bigger than our families, bigger than this planet. It's the eternal kingdom. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. We're going to look at a passage in Isaiah 9. If you have your Bibles, I'd love it if you'd open them to Isaiah 9. And there is, as always, a live event for this message. And uh, don't, don't hit George's. It'll be very confusing if you hit George's. So uh, there's a live event for this message you can follow along with if you would like to do so. We've been talking about transitioning. If you've been here the past several weeks, you know, we, we transition from envy to contentment. We transition from pushing to praying. We transition from shallowness to depth. And today I want to talk to you about transitioning from the everyday kingdom to having a mindset that is more in line with the eternal kingdom. You know, the Bible says that we're actually citizens of a different place than this. It says that in places like Philippians 3.20, where the Apostle Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus. I want to live like a citizen of heaven while I'm here on this planet. Your Bibles are open to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read a familiar passage of Scripture because it's often read at Christmas. We're just going to read the first seven verses of it. Follow along silently as I read. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Boy, that's a good opening, isn't it? There'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. 
Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So when I read that passage, I realize that when he says to us a child is born, he's talking about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And I realize that he's saying that some 700 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, And I realize as well, when he talks about the government will be upon his shoulder and a lasting kingdom of peace, that he's talking about something that is both now and something that is yet future. And I begin to realize that God really doesn't give us a lot of the times and the dates here, but rather what he's talking about is that there is an eternal kingdom that is here and now, which if you're trusting in Christ as your savior, you are a part of. And you can live as though you live in the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom. What does that even mean? How is that characterized? What I want to do in the next few minutes is just look at this passage of scripture and show you seven characteristics or seven marks of the eternal kingdom. And when I say the eternal kingdom, I'm talking about the kingdom of God, or as Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven. And I don't want you to be really splitting theological hairs here. I'm not doing that. I'm kind of collecting, connecting rather, theological dots as we go along here. And I want to talk to you about the marks of the eternal kingdom. And the first of those marks is joy. I mean, if you think about the first verse we just read, it says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those in distress. I can get behind that. No more gloom. No more regret. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more mourning, no more loss, no more sin, no more guilt, no more mistakes, no more shame, no more tears, no more death, no more misery. None of those things exist in the eternal kingdom. In fact, when the Bible says in Revelation 21.4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. God is basically saying in those words, there's no sorrow in the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom is marked by joy. And second, the eternal kingdom is marked by light. Again, I'm getting all seven of these right from these verses. And this is in verse two, where it says the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And where there is darkness, evil can flourish. But when light comes, evil tends to hide. So when I was in college, I worked as a campus policeman. One of the the jobs that campus policemen do is they they check doors to make sure they're locked so that no one could get in there when they shouldn't be in there. I can remember uh, walking, walking along one evening and there were some buildings that were all the same and uh, the one I grabbed a handle and it was open and it was, it was vacant. It was a, kind of a small, I think of it as an apartment. It was just a very, very small house, identical houses together the students lived in. This one was vacant and I grabbed the door and it's open and I thought, ah, oh. now the next thing is you have to go in and you have to go check. So I walked across the room over to where I knew the light switch was and I flipped the light switch on and then I realized what had been crunching under my feet. It's the south. 
It's Georgia. It's cockroaches. Oh, how gross is that, right? Now, I want to tell you, in the South, in fact, in Florida, they don't call them cockroaches. What do they call them? Anybody know? Palmetto bugs. Doesn't that sound like something you can put on your salad? <laughs> right? Yeah, it kind of does, right? But here's what I noticed. that As soon as I hit that light switch, it was almost instantly, I think those things are turbocharged or something, they went, and they were gone. They just fled immediately when the light came on. That's what light does to cockroaches. That's what light does to darkness. When a great light shines in this kind of world, in the darkness of this world, that's a beautiful thing because it vanquishes evil. It dispels evil. The eternal kingdom is marked by light. Third, the eternal kingdom is marked by freedom. Verse 4 says, as it was in a day of Midian's defeat. You might be thinking, oh, Midian's defeat. Do I remember? Yeah, that was Gideon. He's the one who did that. And if you remember, he did it with like 300 men and he had like vases or, or urns or something that he had torches in and he smashed them, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And, and the people, the enemy, the enemy that was oppressing Israel killed themselves. It was just an amazing event that happened. Well, the passage says right there in verse four, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered, God has shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Freedom is what that's about. Freedom from oppression, freedom from whatever has you in its grip, freedom from any bondage you find yourself in, freedom from the heavy burdens that that weigh you down, freedom from whatever abuses you. In the eternal kingdom, there's freedom. Fourth, the eternal kingdom is marked by lasting peace, not by temporary peace. (laughs) I can't remember a time in my life where there wasn't a war going on somewhere. You probably can't either. I've read the the statistics that say in the history of humankind, there's been this many years of non-war, and I even doubt that, you know? Because there's no lasting peace in the world we live in, but in the eternal kingdom, verse 5 says, the warrior's boot is used in battle, and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why? Because they're not needed anymore. And do you notice, it's not saying that these implements of war are going to be put away in the closet, because we'll probably need those again. You know how it is. It says they're fuel for the fire. They're going to be burned because in the eternal kingdom, weapons of war have no place. They're unnecessary. Fifth, the eternal kingdom is marked by lasting peace, marked by the governance of Christ. For to us, it says, a child is born, and we know that's Jesus. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders Don't worry, it's not your job to govern in the eternal kingdom. You don't have to elect someone and then be disappointed and elect them again four years later. You don't have to do that in the eternal kingdom. The governance is on his shoulders. Do you ever feel like human government is just an experiment that fails over and over again? I mean, we all feel that way from time to time. Executive branch, legislative branch, the judicial branch. What are they thinking sometimes, right? You'll never wonder that in the eternal kingdom because a government is divine. It's Christ. It's on his shoulders. Jesus ruling. That's a beautiful thing. Let me give you two more. It is marked by, 
the shalom of Christ. Now, if you're paying attention, you think, okay, well, that's number six, but what about number four? Because number four, that was about the peace, and shalom and peace mean the same thing, right? Not exactly. If, if you look at verse six, the latter part of it says, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then look at the last phrase, Prince of Shalom is what's being said there. And shalom is a Hebrew word that means more than just the absence of war. It means the presence of fulfillment. That you are fulfilled. That everything is right with the world. That it's good to be alive and it's good to be you and it's good to live where you do and live the way you do. That's shalom. And in the eternal kingdom, shalom is a major characteristic. Shalom is what lets you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. Shalom. Shalom is what lets you present your request to God so that the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Shalom. Shalom is what allows you to cast all your cares on him because you know he cares for you. Shalom. Shalom marks the eternal kingdom. And number seven, shalom marks the eternal kingdom probably because the kingdom itself is marked by the powerful presence of God. All these things we've been talking about happen because for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he's here, and he's among us, and the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. That's what it says at the end of verse seven. By the way, that word zeal When you look at what is that word, what do the linguists tell us that that word means? It really means jealousy. Now, this might sound like a sexist statement, but I'm quoting Shakespeare, so take it up with him. Have you heard this phrase? Hell hath no fury as a woman scorned. Here's what that means. You have a woman, you and she are, you know, getting along pretty well, and you say, I don't think I want her anymore. I think I want this one instead. Just be ready, because there's going to be Hades coming from that first girl. Envy. Jealousy. It's an intense emotion. And it is the language that God uses to describe the power with which he ushers in and maintains the eternal kingdom. Nothing's going to stop it. He is jealous for you. He loves like a hurricane. The eternal kingdom is marked by the powerful presence of God. I'm going to kind of compare that to the everyday kingdom. That is the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of our society, the culture we live in. And I want to begin by just completely contrasting these two po- these seven points that we've talked about. First, the kingdom of this world, the everyday kingdom, is marked by sorrow. And even at times, despair. I was looking for an illustration to illustrate this, and I happen to remember. Maybe you remember it as well. In 2015... Wow. A three-year-old Syrian boy wearing, what, a red shirt and blue pants is laying on the beach along the Mediterranean Sea. His shoes are over there, and he's lifeless. Do you remember Alan? That was his name. Alan Curdy. I thought about putting that photo on the screen. I would not do that to you. But that is the sorrow that marks the everyday kingdom. And it is everywhere. It is all around us. It is, it is in our news. Can you look at that photo 
I mean, can you really look at it and not have a broken heart? And what of those who stand at borders of any country, even our own? I'm not being political here. I'm being real here about the sorrow that's in the everyday kingdom. Would you want to be one of them standing at any border wanting to get in? Would you want to be maybe the agents, the federal agents who have to figure out how to work with that? I pity them. I would never want to be in their position. Don't you wish that problems like that didn't exist? Isn't there something in your heart that says, I just wish that didn't have to happen? When you wish that, you are wishing that you weren't in the everyday kingdom. You're wishing that you were in the eternal kingdom because the everyday kingdom is marked by sorrow and even despair. And when you look around this world and you see it, you're noticing the very reality of what Isaiah is talking about. What a contrast that sorrow is to, there will be no more gloom, verse 1 says, for those who are in distress. The everyday kingdom is marked by sorrow. It's marked by darkness, spiritual darkness. Have you ever been in a cave doing like a tourist thing in a cave, like maybe in Penn's Cave, or uh, Laurel and I went to Luray Caverns one time. We've been in um, Indian Echo Caverns down in Hershey. We took our kids there. If you go with a tour guide, the tour guide does something, on all the ones I've ever been on, does something about when they get in the deepest part of the cave. You know what they do? They warn you, I'm going to turn off all the lights. And when they turn off those lights you realize exactly how helpless you are in pure darkness. I mean, I'm standing there and I'm thinking, I don't even know where my wife is. I don't know which way to go to get out of here. If he doesn't turn those lights off, I'm just going to die right here. Fortunately, I'll be buried, but that's what's going to happen because you're utterly helpless in such darkness as that. Well, in the everyday kingdom, if you're in darkness, you're spiritually helpless. And unless someone can turn on the light, there'll be no hope for you. Contrast that with the words of verse 2, where it says the people watching in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a new light has dawned on them. The everyday kingdom is marked by darkness. And third, the everyday kingdom is marked by bondage. When I think of bondage, you know, I think of addiction. I think of opioids. I think of alcohol. I think of meth. But that is not the only kind of bondage that is in the everyday kingdom. Do you hear that? There's a lot of other bondage in the everyday kingdom. Bondage to anger. I am just an angry person. Wow. Bondage to lust. Bondage to power. Bondage to control. Bondage to materialism. Bondage to fearfulness. Bondage to bitterness. Bondage to hatred. What a contrast that is with verse 4 which says you have shattered the yoke that burdens them and the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. The everyday kingdom is marked by bondage. And the everyday kingdom is marked by instability. Have you ever noticed how much things change in this world? I mean, it's trivial things like the price of gas. I can remember when gas was like a dollar a gallon. When I moved to Bradford, it was like a dollar 19. I said, how can you make, make gasoline here and charge 10 cents, 20 cents a gallon more than everyone else? A dollar a gallon. Man, I'd love to get gas for a dollar a gallon today. But I've seen when gas has been over $4 a gallon. That shift, that economic shift that affects all of our, all of our lives, instability. But it's in more serious areas as well. BFF. Bob Livergood, would you be my BFF, please? Sure. <sighs> Thank you, Bob. Yeah. My best friend forever. Boy, everybody wants one of those, but I can, I'm guessing that... 
you have friends from several years ago who are now just acquaintances in stability. Or, or even politically, what about our relationships with other countries? Who's our, who are our allies there and who's our enemy there? I don't know. This week it's this way, but next week what will it be? Instability. And contrast that with the stability that's spoken of in verse 5 when it says the warrior's boot is going to be burned and the warrior's cloak that's rolled in blood, it's going to be burned because the kingdom will be so stable there will never be war again. The everyday kingdom marked by instability. And fifth, the everyday kingdom is marked by chaos that comes with human government. Uh, Years and years ago, I had the opportunity to have lunch with someone who from my perspective at that time had been in government for quite a while. We're sitting there together. He wanted to talk to me about spiritual matters. We're talking about some spiritual matters. And then we started talking about his work a little bit. And he said a sentence that went something like this. Steve, <laughs> if people only knew how incompetent human, human government was, it would be laughable. But it's not laughable. He said, it's downright frightening. Hmm. That was three decades ago. I'm sure human government's much better today. Amen? <laughs> yeah. Contrast that with verse 6 where it says the government will be on his shoulders and he'll form an everlasting kingdom. Wow. The eternal kingdom, God reigns. And the everyday kingdom, chaos reigns. Just two more here. It is marked by a conflict of people and powers. Marked by a conflict of people and powers instead of the shalom of Christ. No one needs to tell you how divided our society is. And someone will say, I have never seen our society so divided. It's awful. And I have said that very word. And then I remember the 60s. Do you remember the 60s? Ask a Vietnam vet if he feels like society was divided in the 60s and then sit down and just listen. Because the everyday kingdom has evermore been divisive, not just divided. What would it be like if our whole nation loved our leaders I've never seen that in my life. But I will see it because we're united in the eternal kingdom. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The everyday kingdom is marked by conflict of powers and of persons and it demonstrates the impotent of human leadership without godly guidance. At every corner. At every corner. Contrast that with verse 7. It says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. See, the everyday kingdom, impotent. The eternal kingdom, powerful. Now, many times in a sermon like this, the, the, the point is something like this. So don't worry, just make sure you're part of the eternal kingdom And one day, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to take you with him to be where you are, and you won't have to deal with this everyday kingdom yuckiness ever again. And I believe that, but that's not my point today. Not my point at all today. Remember, we're in a sermon series that's talking about transitioning yourself from defensiveness to teachability, from envy to contentment, from shallowness to depth. So today I want to ask you to transition your thinking and yourself from the everyday kingdom to the eternal kingdom. I want you in your mind to consider living a life that reflects the reality of the eternal kingdom while you're living in the everyday kingdom. Do you get that? And that idea comes from John 17. 
You probably heard the phrase, we are in the world, not of the world. I heard that phrase so much growing up that I thought it was in the Bible. That exact phrase isn't in the Bible, but the concept of it comes from Jesus' words in John 17. Jesus is praying for people like you and me. And he says, I have given them your word. He's talking to the Father. And the world has hated them for they are not, and here it is the phrase, they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Did you, did you catch that last phrase? We are not of the world, but we are indeed in the world. And when we live as though we are of the world, <laughs> wow, when we live in the everyday kingdom, instead of living like we're members, citizens of the eternal kingdom, then bad things happen. First of all, our spiritual, our spiritual growth atrophies and declines. Pastor Steve, I don't feel like I'm connected with God like I used to be. Which kingdom are you living like you're in? Second, the kingdom of God is not honored and enhanced and grown. You know, things just don't seem to be happening right in this old world. Maybe that's because we're living too much like we're in the everyday kingdom and not a lot enough like we're in the eternal kingdom. And third, God's not honored. He's not honored when I live in the everyday kingdom. I want to live a life that reflects the reality of the eternal kingdom. And we can do that. I want to give you seven, maybe, pointers that come right from these seven verses, once again. And the first one is this. Ask God for joy that you can share. Ask God for joy that you can share. I mean, if there's no gloom in the eternal kingdom, and I wake up feeling gloomy, then probably I should talk to the eternal one about how to have joy. So when you get up in the morning, God, help me be an agent of joy today. Help me be a person who has joy. Help me in the midst of a very gloomy world to be someone who can bring a sense of smile and well-being to others. And you can do that in real small ways, in corny ways. You can say stuff like, hey, did you happen to know I'm a grandfather? I don't know if I mentioned that or not. Just to put a smile on someone's face. Or you can do it in much deeper ways by saying, you know what? I just feel so good because God really met me this past week because I realized I was living in the everyday kingdom and it was dragging me down. But I'm, I'm living in the eternal kingdom. And just communicating that to another is communicating the joy that you have. And you're reflecting the reality of the eternal kingdom as you live in the everyday kingdom. Another way you can do this is to let your light, the light of God, shine from you. Jesus says if you're part of the eternal kingdom, he says that you're the light of the world. Matthew 5, he says in verse 14, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone. And he says, in that way, let your light shine before men. Let your good deeds shine before men so they see and praise your heavenly Father. Jesus wants you to show and tell. He wants you to live a life of goodness, behaving well before others in a way that brings glory to God. And he wants to let them know, he wants you to let them know, that's because Jesus has changed my life. He's made me a different person. When you let your light shine, you reflect the eternal kingdom while you live in the everyday kingdom. Third, ask God to free you from bondage. Let me ask you a personal question. Are there people in your life that you're concerned about because they're not in the eternal kingdom? Are there people in your life that you're concerned about because they're not in the eternal kingdom? Yeah. 
Well, if, if you and I are living like we're in the everyday kingdom, what kind of influence do you think we're having on those that we're worried about? Huh. Huh. There are people in my life, my family, my neighbors, people I love, people I care about, that if they don't see a difference in me, then they're not going to be attracted to Jesus through me. And so we probably need to deal with the gunk of the everyday kingdom that tends to get on our shoes. We, we need to, you know what I'm talking about, the sin that so easily entangles us. Some of you can remember the story because I've told it before. I love to tell this story. It gets better every time I tell it. It's a story of when my Uncle Bob put the catfish in the pond. So I lived on a farm growing up. We had a, a, a pond out there, and Uncle Bob thought it was a good idea to put catfish in the pond. He was an in-law, by the way. They do that sort of thing, <laughs> all right? And my dad said, what'd you put cat? I want bass in that pond. What'd you put? And the catfish did what catfish did. They took over the pond. There's no bass left now. All that's in there now is about four feet of water with about two feet of mud underneath it. Thanks, Uncle Bob. So finally, my dad got a backhoe and he dug out the, the, the breast of that pond and let all the water and the catfish go, you know? And I can't imagine what that smelled like. I didn't hang around to smell it. I was probably about the size of Rex Livergood. Rex, how old are you, buddy? I was probably 10 or 11 years old, maybe a little younger than that. And I can remember I was there, and there's, a, there's that empty pond with like 18 inches of mud in the bottom. And I was dressed just like a boy on a farm would be dressed uh, who's that age. I had on a, a t-shirt, and I had on cutoffs, and I had on gum boots. And I knew if I go in with those gum boots, those boots I'll never see again, right? So I took them off, and into that mud I went, because how cool is that going to feel on my 10-year-old toes? And when I got in there, I got stuck. And I had that whiff of panic. How am I going to get loose? How am I going to get out of here? And I looked, and there was my dad with his arm like this. I reached up and got a hold of it, and you know what I heard? A loud sucking sound of my, <laughs> of my legs coming out of that. Yeah. My father extended his arm so that I could grab onto it and be free from that which was holding me. Your heavenly father extends his arm so that if you will reach out to it, you can be free from that which is holding you. I am not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's simple. What I'm saying is it's possible because of the eternal kingdom. And if you want to influence other people with light, then you'll have to deal with your own bondage. And when you reflect the eternal kingdom and the freedom you have in Christ in the everyday kingdom, people will see that. Number four, draw your confidence from the unchangeable nature of God. When computers were young, that's a great phrase. I love being able to say that. When computers were young, one of the students at the university used, he logged into the terminal and he said his password with his girlfriend's name. And then just a week or two later, that girlfriend said to him, I think we should see other people. <laughs> and so he went back to that terminal and he changed the name to something he considered to be unchangeable. Dodge. Because his dad had a Dodge truck and he was a Dodge guy. And his thinking went like this. I'll never set my password to something as fickle and changeable as a girl's name. I'm setting it to something that will last. D-O-D-G-E. Because of Dodge trucks. You know, they're not making them anymore. <laughs> they didn't last like he thought. You can get a Ram. But Chrysler spun off that Dodge brand and called it Ram. Because everything changes. Everything 
changes except for one thing, and that's God. Now, I need you to think here. <laughs> Listen to this. As long as your deepest confidence is in a human being, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you will look like every other citizen of the everyday kingdom. As long as your identity is wrapped up in your achievements and your accomplishments, how you score, how you rate, what you've done and what you're doing, you'll look as lost as everyone else in the everyday kingdom. As long as your deepest confidence is in your status, what you wear, who you are, what your name is, you will look every bit as phony as everyone else in the everyday kingdom. As long as your identity is rooted in human relationships, in your sexuality, in your intimacy with people, in your heritage, in the way you look to everyone else, you will look as needy as every other person in the everyday kingdom. But when you find your worth in Jesus Christ and his work done on the cross as an expression of his love to pay for your guilt and shame, then you don't look like anybody in the everyday kingdom. You look like a citizen of the eternal kingdom and that's a great look for you. That's a great look for you. And when you do that, you can reflect the eternal kingdom and the everyday kingdom, placing your trust in the unchangeable Christ. Number six, avoid, I'm sorry, number five, avoid building on shifting sands. In the eternal kingdom, you really need to evaluate, come to terms with how unstable the everyday kingdom is. Jesus says, the wise man builds his house on a rock, the fool builds his house on a stand. He is not giving counsel for contracting, he's giving counsel for how you live your life and to investing your life into that which lasts because only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Avoid building on shifting sand. Number six, be an agent of peace. One time I did a funeral and there was a large group of people there And it was one of those funerals where they asked me to say, would anyone like to share? And that's kind of a risk sometimes, but it went really, it was going pretty well, I guess. And then this woman got up. She had white hair. She got up and and she was dressed well. She, She was very articulate. And she stood and she said, I want to talk about our family. She said, you know, it's a shame that this is the only time we can sit down together and be civil to one another. I'm looking over there. There's my niece. I haven't seen her since she was a little girl. And she's holding a baby today. I haven't even met my great niece. We really need to stop the petty bickering and forgive the past grievances and love one another as a family. We need to do that. You know what she was doing? I don't know if she was part of the eternal kingdom or not, but she was sure living by it because she was being an agent of peace. And when you, when you do that, You reflect the eternal kingdom in the everyday kingdom. And number seven, you're going to find a power for this only in Jesus Christ. Only in him will you find the power to do this. You can't say, well, you know what? Those are good resolutions. Let me write those down. The only way that you'll break free from your bondage, the only way that you'll have confidence in Christ alone, the only way that you'll be an agent of peace is if the Spirit of God is at work in you, transforming you so that you can represent the eternal kingdom instead of the everyday kingdom because flesh and blood, human thinking, human power and endeavor cannot, cannot represent the eternal kingdom. It's only God that can do that. And so I want to pray that you can do that that you will transition from the everyday kingdom and begin 
to reflect in the way you live the eternal kingdom. And if you're comfortable doing so, I'd ask you to stand as we pray to that end. So I'm going to pray down this list, so whoever's running the PowerPoint, don't take it away until I'm done, okay? Let's bow our hearts together. Father in heaven, as we're gathered here, we are gathered asking for you to help us because we do not want to be mere inhabitants of the everyday, mundane kingdom of this world. We want to reflect the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We want to reflect the reality of the eternal kingdom. So I pray that first you would fill us with a spirit of joy. Long faces do not attract people. But joyful, joyful people, man, that changes things. And true joy comes from you, Jesus. And so I pray that you would fill us with joy daily so that we can share that in the everyday kingdom, reflecting the eternal kingdom. I pray that you would make us people of light and our good deeds would glorify you and people would see them and they would glorify you. I pray that you would free us from bondage. Wow. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would free us from bondage. Extend your strong arm. Give us the sense to wrap our arms around it and gently pull us from the miry clay and set our feet on the rock so that when people see us, they're drawn to that change that you have brought within us and ultimately drawn to you. Give us confidence from your unchanging nature. Help us to build on the rock. Help us to be men and women of peace and not chaos. And may we find the power to do this and no one less than the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.